Hey, it's great to see you. I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. And if you've just walked in for the first time today, we're really thrilled you could be with us for this Easter. Uh, maybe you traveled from a, a distance to be here. You're visiting with friends or family. We're glad that this could be your home uh, for this special day. Um, I just want to just acknowledge that uh, I'm probably not alone in in having attended an Easter service before. If you've ever attended one of these services, raise your hand. We have got so much in common. I've gone to more than a few of these over the years. And, and it's been my experience that almost always, not every time, but almost always, it's the same story being told. Have you noticed that? Uh, you know, if, if you're part of one of those, birth, if you're part of the birth and resurrection society, you hear the Christmas story, and then you hear the exact same story, or the other story about Easter on, on this day. And it's a story that usually involves Mary and the other women going to the tomb and finding that the tomb is empty, and then be, being told that Jesus has risen from the dead. And um, on some odd uh, Sundays, Easter Sundays, you might hear a different story. You might uh, hear one of those stories about how Jesus shows up to one of the celebrity disciples, you know, Peter. Uh, James and John, doubting Thomas sometimes, and has an encounter with them, and, and they all kind of go, wow, and, and their lives have been altered by this experience. Those are, those are the core stories of Easter. Those are really important ones, so it's good that we hear them on a regular basis. But that's not the story I'm going to tell you today. Okay, we're not going to play those tunes. We're going to take, we're going to take a a tune from, a, from the Deeper Cuts album. Okay, playlist, the Easter playlist. And we're gonna look at a story that doesn't usually get addressed on Easter Sunday. Almost always it, it, it gets talked about like the Sunday after Easter when one or two or fewer of us have shown up. So I wanna introduce you to this great other story from Easter today and, and, because it has so much value to us uh, and I think you're going to find that before you leave, that there's just something here for every one of us in this tale. This particular story comes from the very end of the gospel according to Luke. Luke was a doctor, a physician, and he um, is credited for writing one of these great gospels. And in chapter 24 of his gospel, Luke tells us this story. And I invite you to listen uh, with me as we hear from God's word. Now, that same day, which means that same Easter Sunday... But in the afternoon, after brunch, uh, that same day, two of them, which means the them is followers of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was a journey of about two and a half hours by foot. And they're making that journey on this particular afternoon. Now we're gonna learn in a moment that these two individuals are not any of the famous disciples, okay? It's not John or Paul or Ringo or George. It's not any of those guys. These are sort of unknown disciples, people around the margins of the story. And um, one of the, these people is a person named Cleopas, as we'll hear in a minute. And Cleopas is the male version of the female name Cleopatra. You've heard that, right? Cleopas, Cleopatra. Great baby names, if any of you are in the market for them. I think it's curious that the Bible actually leaves out the name of the person traveling with Cleopas. It's kind of curious. 
Why name one and not the other? Uh, I wonder, this is a, a wild guess, um, but I wonder if, if, it's, if, if it's not Luke's way of inviting us to put ourselves in the story. Any of you have ever been in one of those, um, those exhibits, those photo op exhibits at, zoo, at a zoo or a museum or a, a, a park, and, and they have this kind of uh, set up here, and there's a hole uh, in, in the cutout, and you can put your head through it, and suddenly you're in the scene, right, with, the, with what's going on there. Uh, so you feel like you're part of the story. I wonder, I wonder if that isn't part of why we don't hear the name. We're being invited in, into the story. And I think that's a good thing because I, whether that's true or not, this story really um, introduces us to people who are a lot like us, as you're going to see. Um, for one thing, we're told in the scripture, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, this is what we do. We spend a lot of our time as people talking about the stuff that's happened, right? We're just interacting with each other. We kibitz along life's journey about the latest happenings. Like, um, you know, what do you make of the Chicago mayoral election results? And, and, and how do you think that Trump's legal challenges is going to affect the, 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 the upcoming elections? And, 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 and will the Cubs have a de- decent season this year? And did, did you catch the new episode of Succession or watch uh, who, who got on to the next round of The Voice? Or, or have you seen that really cool new YouTube video? This is what we do. We don't just have life happen to us. We process life. And we do it together. Because life is interesting, it's confusing, it's scary at times, it's challenging. In, in a word, life is complex, and it really helps to have people to work it through with. I know I, I've been texting back and forth this past couple of weeks with some friends and some family in other parts of the country, uh, because in my, in my household, my extended family, there are, there's a, a pair of really serious health crises going on. Now, the people that I'm interacting with, they cannot solve this problem. They can't, I wish they could. They can't solve it, but, but they can share it. And, and their sharing of this burden of what's going on that I'm feeling, it, it just makes a difference. It is a positive difference in my life that I've got people to share what's going on in my life uh, with. They're my Cleopas or my Cleopatra, right? Question is, do you have a Cleo? Do you have some Cleos in your life, people that you can vent with, you know, tell the truth to, uh, be told the truth by, uh, uh, just process everything that has happened lately in your life? Um, I just want you to know that if you don't have enough of those people, or maybe if you just want more, you will find a lot of Cleos here. You will find safe friendships here. You will find constructive companions for life's journey in the fellowship of Christ Church. Um, so here, here, here's these two individuals, and, and um, they're walking on the road to Emmaus, And the text says that as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. And this is an interesting fact. 
Where do you picture Jesus is right now? Where do you picture him being? Maybe some of you picture him still in the grave. You don't buy this whole Easter thing. Yeah, he's buried someplace. Maybe, maybe you, you mainly think of him as sort of stuck between the pages of the Bible. He's not really a player until you open up the Bible and then you kind of get introduced to him again. Or some of you have him still in, in the Sunday school storybook. Um, last, yesterday when, when I asked this question, where is Jesus, a, a, a child said, he's in heaven. And some of us, some of us think that. We think, well, he's, just in the, he's way out there beyond someplace, uh, but not particularly connected to life today. But Jesus said something really interesting to his disciples. One of the last things he said to them, he said, I'll be with you always. I'll be with you always. Whenever two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there. I will meet with you. So Easter answers the question of where Jesus is. He is right with you now as you go along the road of life. He's not in a box. He's not just in a book. He's not just out there beyond. He isn't confined to those places. He doesn't just care about religious places. He cares about regular places and ordinary people. He cares about the roads that you walk and the school that you go to and the job that you're going to be showing up at on Monday. He cares about the, 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 the people and the circles you'll be with this afternoon. Jesus cares about all of this stuff, and he wants to companion you in those very real places in life. He wants to share your life in a personal way and supply you with grace and truth and love for the journey. And I think that's part of why this story gets told, is to remind us of that reality. Well, the Easter story goes on, and it gives us this, this further amazing insight. And Luke tells us that Jesus was with those two disciples on the road, but they were kept from recognizing him. That's an interesting fact because it's a familiar one and a repeated one in a lot of the stories about Easter. Almost always on Easter, people didn't recognize him at first. It's like they had a certain expectation about life, and one of those expectations was when you're dead, you're dead. Uh, that, that even Mary in the garden didn't recognize him. Uh, Peter and John and the other disciples, when he showed up behind locked doors in the room where they were hiding, they didn't immediately recognize him. Thomas didn't believe it was really Jesus until he put his hands in the wounds. Sometimes you can be so locked in a particular perspective that you don't actually see what God is doing in this moment right now. Some years ago, I, I performed a, a wedding for a wonderful couple in the church. And, uh, and I was invited to go to the reception. And it was in uh, one of these hotels over here in Oak Brook. And, um, and I was seated at a table with the parents of the bride. And I, and I was seated right adjacent to the father of the bride, a guy named Bill. And we struck up a conversation, a very amiable conversation. We talked about the wedding. We talked about the weather. talked about current events. You know, we're like those two disciples on the road just kind of kibitzing about what was going on. And as the conversation went on, uh, something weird began to happen, and I didn't clue into it at first. And here was the weird thing. Almost always in these kinds of settings, 
I'm the guy that asks the questions. I'm a, I'm a pathological extrovert. I'm really curious about other people. And I, and I always, I like to hear their stories. But in this particular encounter, it was reversed. And Bill is asking me all the questions about my life. And he's drawing me out. And I realize after about an hour or so of, of, of walking with Bill, so to speak, that, that I have poured out my whole life story to this guy. I, I have given him like TMI. I mean, he's probably, I'm thinking he must be bored. He knows so much about me. I'm talking about my dreams and my hopes, and my, my, my background. And, 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 I, and I, I get to a moment of the conversation where I think, gosh, this is so strange. And then I think, well, what do I know about this guy? I hardly know anything. And then I start to think about the things that have dropped in the conversation and they, these little data points begin to sparkle. He lives outside of Washington, D.C. He's been to Kenny Bunkport. He knows a lot about public affairs. He's amazing at asking questions. His his last name, the maiden name of the bride, is Webster. And then I connect the dots. Bill, my companion, is William H. Webster. He is the only American in history to have ever been the director of the FBI and the director of the CIA. <laughs> he is a professional interrogator. He is what he is. And I've been with this amazing guy now, you know, for almost two hours, and I had not recognized him. You see why I'm telling you the story? These two disciples are in the presence of somebody way more amazing than, than William H. Webster. And he is being every bit as patient and kind and gracious with them as he inquires of their life and their story um, as, as Bill was in my life. Um, and and I, just, I just love that, about that little detail about the story. Um, and so Jesus asked them, we're told, what are you discussing together as you walk along? What's on your mind? What's troubling your hearts? What are you curious about? Tell me about your life, Jesus is saying. And they stood still, their faces downcast, because the traveler in asking that question had struck a nerve with them. Like, like, like we sometimes do, I think, when we're troubled and somebody sort of cuts in, pushes into that a little bit too closely. One of them, named Cleopas, that's where we get the guy's name, lashes out sort of defensively at the question, that's being asked of him. And he asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? You know, have you not been watching the news? <laughs> have you gotten not a single post about what's going on, the crazy things that have happened, is what they say to the stranger. And I love this. Jesus says, what things? You know, he knows what things. <laughs> He's on the inside of this story. But he wants to hear how they're processing it. Like he wants to know how you and I are processing our lives. 
Um, and he gives us invitations to talk about it. This is a pattern with Jesus. You can read your way through the Gospels and just, just underline or circle the questions he asks. As He's always posing these provocative questions that are designed to help people name the stuff of their life so that he can help them work with it in a constructive direction. So he says, what things? And they answer, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, a, a, a person of God, somebody who spoke for God. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all of the people. In other words, he was somebody that people should be paying attention to. And then they say, but the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. Have you ever gotten, have you ever, do you ever find yourself just so upset at the injustice that goes on in the world sometimes? At the good people that get slaughtered, at the heartache, at the things that are just not the way they should be. That's the sentiment these guys are describing. You know, of all people, that the rulers and the chief priests ought to have cherished and listened to it. It ought to have been that guy. But they handed him over to be sentenced and he was not just killed, he was crucified, the most agonizing death humanly possible. And then they say this, and this is a part I hope you'll really tune into. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Any of you fans of the Matrix series? What's the question they ask Neo in the opening episode? Are you the one? Are you the one? Now you know where the Hollywood writers got it. I'm not joking you. They took the story. It's a, the first Matrix story, it's a, it's a redemption story. It's a resurrection story. Neo means new, new man. I will make all things new, said Jesus. I'm getting away from myself. So, in this particular instance, it's a really interesting confession they're making that we had hoped that he was the one to, to redeem Israel because what they're revealing there is the mindset of most Jewish people, the frame in which they saw life, that the Messiah was going to be a political and military conqueror, a political and military figure. He was going to throw out the Roman occupiers. He was going to establish a new Jewish kingdom on the model and of the style of King David of yore. Those were the glory days in Israel's life. And he would give his followers power and prosperity and position, which is what they felt they really had been denied and actually deserved. So this is their vision. It's interesting. In every age, we keep falling back into the same rut where we think to ourselves, our salvation lies in might and politics. We're going to do it again in a couple of months. We're going to put all of our faith again in some figure, some messianic political figure that will get us out of the mess we feel we're in. And it's not that politics don't matter and, and strong military uh, doesn't matter. Those things all matter. But at the heart, the human problem is a problem of the heart. We don't need so much political and military reorganization, though some of that for sure. 
What we desperately need is spiritual transformation. And what the, what the people of Judaism... struggled to get was that truth. Um, And then the the guys go on and they say, and what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. This terrible thing happened to to the one we thought was the Messiah. And and now a couple of days have gone by and, you know, nothing's changed. In addition, some of our women amazed us, they confessed. At this point, they're just really confused about the details going on here. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. I mean, how weird is this? They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels, messengers from God, who said he was alive. Uh, Then some of our companions went to the tomb and, and found it just as the women had said. Quick sidebar, guys, it often is as the women are saying. (laughs) It just takes us a little longer to get to it. But they did not see Jesus. They did not see Jesus. Now I want to take you back to verse 21 in this story. It's the one that reads, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And, and, and they had a picture of what that redemption would look like, political and military. Linger for a moment on that phrase, would you? That phrase that just says, we had, but we had hoped that. But we had hoped that. Have you ever felt that? A frustrated hope. How often has the pain, the confusion, the discouragement, the disappointment in our lives, in our relationships, in our spirits, been a product of the fact that reality is not lining up with what we had hoped? I had hoped you would be a different kind of spouse. I mean, when we signed up, I had a picture of what you were going to be. And look who you are. (laughs) Or or I had hoped you would be a kid like me. Or not like me. Or, Or when we hired you or brought you into this team, we... We had hoped that you had these gifts and would make these contributions that aren't happening. Or I'd hoped that my my life storyline would go this way. Or, or, Or God, I had hoped that you would make it all right. And it's not right now. How many of you have ever been in a place like that? Yeah, and you've got lots of friends, family members in that place. We can all get that. I think it's hard to be people who are so bright and so competent that we know the way things should be. I think it's a burden uh, to, to be as gifted as we are and, um, and, and, to, and to know how reality ought to line up. And it's harder still, when it's not lining up, to surrender our trust to God, to to, to believe that there might actually be an intelligence and a power with an even bigger and better plan than we'd conceived. I don't think that God operates by a different plan 
in order to crush our hopes or just to try and humble us or just to be a jerk, to say, I'm God and you're not. I don't think God does that. That's not his character. In fact, I actually believe that God likes to meet us at the place of hope. I think that there's every reason to think that God wants to build our hope up. I think God answers every hopeful prayer. Sometimes he says, yes. Sometimes he says, wait. And sometimes he says, I have a, I've got something better going on. Can't do that. I have something better going on. And I think this is what Jesus was trying to impart to those disciples who were so disappointed at the way things had turned out. He said to them, how foolish you are. And I'll just observe in passing that when you read the word fool or foolish in the Bible, it doesn't doesn't mean stupid. A fool wasn't somebody that was stupid. There were a lot of brilliant fools in, in the Old Testament stories in particular. A fool is somebody whose vision and behavior doesn't align with reality. Isn't up against the plumb line of reality. That's what a fool is in biblical language. Uh, and he's just telling these guys, guys, you're, you're being kind of foolish. You don't see what reality is, is, really is here. And you are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You talked earlier about these prophets and how you're disappointed that, 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 that everything they'd been pointing to didn't happen. No, you just didn't read them. You didn't read them closely enough. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? Wasn't that actually in the prophetic teaching? Didn't they tell you that he would suffer first and then enter into his glory? And then the text says, so beginning with Moses, the most famous of the Old Testament prophets, and all the other prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. This was the bulk of the long walk to Emmaus. Jesus just taken them through all of the actual teaching of the prophets about the coming Messiah. This is what they had said in actuality. This person who was coming was going to be a spiritual transformer and not a military and political conqueror. He would be a suffering servant, not a dominating master. The Messiah would be a person of unique moral purity. He would be someone whose sacrificial death would balance the scales of God's justice. And, and, the, and the prophets even said how he would die. Go home and read Psalm 22 today. And, 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 and just see if that isn't a description of crucifixion. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the Romans invented it. They even said how he would die, the, this Messiah. But that death would pay the price for human sin. It would open up a pathway for human beings to be reconciled with God again. This Messiah's life would be so beautiful, it would show us what our lives could look like if we were aligned with God and he was filling us and powering our lives. And this Messiah would describe for us the beautiful kingdom above any country or culture or civilization that we are made for that we can help 
shape together and live into together. This is what the prophets actually taught. But the vast majority of Israel resisted that understanding of redemption, as we're still doing. We still keep looking for the false solutions. In fact, Jesus' own celebrity disciples, you know, the big names, they all the way up to his crucifixion are still thinking it's about health, wealth, prosperity, power for me. They're, they're arguing amongst each other, who gets the better seat when the kingdom comes? It's just amazing they, how hard it is to get outside the frame and recognize what God is actually doing. And I think that's easy today for us to get stuck on what we had hoped instead of seeing the greater good that God is actually bringing to pass. I will say that I'm in that camp. Um, there, there have been so many times in my life where I've just been just so disappointed. I have said, you know, God, are you managing this? Um, you know, I, I, it, those have been hard times. I have felt twinges of that in these recent months. I said earlier, we've got some health crisis in my family. I, one of my younger brothers, a brilliant younger brother, has been diagnosed with a very serious cancer. Um, I have a, a, a beloved nephew who just got engaged this summer to an incredible girl. I was there. I saw him ask her to marry him. It was a family gathering. It was amazing. I love this young woman. And, and she is lying in a hospital right now, and her heart is failing. And only a heart transplant is probably going to save her. And she's in her 20s. Okay? So, so I'm praying for all of the doctors and nurses that are rallying around these two beloved family members. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about, about that right now. But I will tell you that I have come to believe that even if it doesn't turn out the way I had hoped, there's still hope. Because I believe in a redeemer. I believe in the redeemer. I believe the Lord is utterly capable of working for good in all of these circumstances. The circumstances aren't good but I believe he can bring a good even out of bad circumstances. I believe in a savior who even if my loved ones die, even if I'm hit by a bus before I get to brunch today, can resurrect us to life in all of its fullness and glory, to a life that will make even our wildest imaginings of life here look like a bug's life compared to the glory of the life he has planned for us. And I believe all of this because of Easter. I believe it because of Easter. Because Jesus died and so clearly was raised to new life again. There is no explanation for this event we're doing here today if Easter wasn't true. There's no way that there would be a Christian movement if Easter had not actually happened the way the Bible describes it. Why do I believe in the resurrection? Let me give you a quick, a quick set of thoughts on that. First, because his enemies never recovered the corpse, and that's all that it would have taken to, to close down the whole hoax, if that's what it was. And they put 
energy into protecting the corpse, as the story uh, is told. Um, and we've never found that body. Secondly, the grave clothes were found. But the condition the grave clothes were in, if you read in John's Gospel, were such that anytime somebody went up to them and saw the grave clothes, they believed. What was it about the grave clothes? It was that they were like a chrysalis, a, a perfectly wrapped set of grave clothes, a perfectly wrapped headcloth, and it was like what had been inside it dematerialized through it and reassembled itself on the other side. And it converted people. Just the sight of the grave clothes. Thirdly, Jesus was seen. He was seen not just by Mary, not just by Peter and James and John and the other disciples, not just by these two guys on the Emmaus Road. He was seen by more than 500 people in various situations and states and emotional conditions, people that weren't sort of sitting there pining away, wishing they could see Jesus. They were people who got on with life. And then Jesus showed up. <laughs> and it was so clear to them he was alive. And the fourth reason why I believe Easter is because of what that encounter with Jesus did. It changed them. It took people that had been hiding for fear of being arrested and tortured and maybe even crucified like Jesus had been. It took people that were cowering behind locked doors and made them people willing to go out into the world with a boldness that had not been seen in their life before, willing to go even to an agonizing, and many of them, hundreds of them, agonizing death for the sake of this message because they could not deny that Jesus, not Caesar, was the Lord. The Lord over life, the Lord over death. Easter changed people and set in motion a movement of love and hope still fueled by eternal power that continues across the world in so many places today. So as they approached the village to which they were going, the Bible says, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Now I'm going to I'm going to pause the story there, and I just want to highlight a few of the takeaways I hope you will walk out of here with today. And then I'm going to get us close to the end here. First, I want to encourage you to dare to believe that Jesus is truly walking with you on the road of your life. I want to encourage you to know that as great as he is, way more than William H. Webster that he is seriously interested in your life and how you're experiencing it and what's going on with you and what your future looks like. He's interested in you and your story. Thirdly, remember that what you hope for and the way that you would like to see life play out might not actually be the best way. Trust in God's plan Trust in his wisdom. Don't let your fixed frame about the way things ought to be stop you from recognizing that Jesus is truly there and he is working for the ultimate good 
in and through your life. Fourthly, like those disciples on the Emmaus Road, invite Jesus to stay with you. Some of you have felt touched by Jesus from time to time. You feel this twinge of awe in the presence of some magnificent part of the creation. You, 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 you read the Bible and occasionally a verse gets luminous. You have some preacher that reaches your heart for a moment. You have some friend that says something that you think, oh, that was a total godsend in my life, what they did, what they said. You have these moments and then you go back to every, to the normal stuff, to the clatter and rustle of life. We all do this, I, I, I'm with you. Jesus is not gonna force himself on anybody. He's not, he waits to be invited to stay, to come into our lives. In fact, he says at one point, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. Which as we've been saying in this whole series leading up to this is a, is a metaphor for commune with, do life with. I will eat with them and they with me. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't done it before, invite Jesus to stay. Invite him into your life and past the foyer of your life, into all of the rooms of your life and say, Jesus, renovate it. Renovate my life. Help me make the very best of it for your glory, for the blessing of others, for the fulfillment of my purposes. He will only stay with those who ask for his fellowship, with those who are not content to have him just be an Easter contact, but an everyday companion. That's, that's what he's hoping for from you and from me. And finally, Think about your next encounter with Jesus at the table. Luke 24 concludes by saying this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. He moved on to the next thing he would do. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? I didn't say it to you, Cleopas, but man, my heart was on fire when he was opening up the word. Wasn't that amazing? And they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem and there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together. I want you to note in conclusion today that Jesus reveals himself in a very special, as in a can't find it elsewhere way at the table of his people, at the table of the community of faith. It was when Cleopas and his partner were breaking bread with Jesus that he was opening the scriptures to them that they recognized him. And if you want to see Jesus yourself more, if you want to experience the benefits of his grace and his truth and his love even more, then please come back to Christ's table. Please, for your sake, do that. This is where God's scripture gets opened up every week. This is where we find amazing companions 
for the journey of life. This is where we learn together how to follow Jesus in a complex world. It doesn't have to be this church. Find some church. Sit at the table with Jesus on a regular basis and it will make a difference. Let me close with a story and let you go. When their 27-year-old son, Matthew, took his own life after battling with mental illness for so many years, Rick and Kay Warren had an epiphany. Rick Warren, as you may know, was the writer of The Purpose Driven Life, the, most, the best-selling book in all of human history next to the Bible. And, and Rick and Kay said this. We've, we've often been asked, how have you made it? How have you made it? How have you just kept going? And we've replied, the answer is Easter. The answer is Easter. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus happened over three days, they noted. Friday was the day of suffering and pain and agony. Saturday was the day of doubt and confusion and misery. But Easter, that Sunday, was the day of hope and joy and victory. And here's the fact, they said. You will face those three days over and over and over again in your life. When you do, you'll find yourself asking three fundamental questions. One, what do I do to get through my days of pain? Two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? And three, how do I persevere to get to the days of joy and victory? The answer, say the Warrens, is Easter. And the people of Easter, they will wrap around you. So I want to invite you to come back to the table next Sunday. Even if there are a few less of us here, maybe a few more open seats, that's good. We can invite friends to join us. Come back to the table because Christ, life's greatest companion, is risen from the dead. He's risen indeed and eager to walk with you on your road and you will find the relationships that you need to follow him in a complex world at the table of his church more than you will find them anywhere else. So thank you for being the Easter people. Thank you for coming today, filling this place up, watching us online. May God journey with you until we meet again. Hallelujah. Amen.